so many of you know that uh, my day job is to teach high schoolers, uh, and I teach the subject primarily of classical Greek. And uh, one of the things I do in my class most days, I would say uh, at least three out of every four class periods, we begin class by reciting uh, the endings that we have learned. Uh, if you know anything about ancient languages, uh, Greek or Latin, very similar in this regard, they're what are called inflected languages, which mean that rather than the language using syntax, things like word order and helping words to form different moods and tenses and voices of verbs, uh, the verbs themselves simply take different forms. And so one single verb in Greek uh, I mean, think about this. One verb has over 170 different possible ways that that, that verb can appear because you have a combination of prefixes, infixes, and suffixes. And with all of those possible combinations, uh, one single verb uh, can have 170 different possibilities, which means we've got to know our endings. We've got to know the significance of those endings. And so we recite them. And as you can imagine, for high schoolers, this is often a uh, hard sell. Uh, one, because there's that like, ongoing tension with high schoolers that like, maybe this isn't cool. So kind of, kind of glancing around at people in the room, I've had a couple classes that just like embrace it, but most of them it's kind of like this, what are my friends thinking right now if I'm saying this? Uh, but we say these endings over and over and over and over and over, and one of the reasons we do that is because knowing them is not sufficient. So if I gave a quiz on the endings, many of my students would be able to probably write most of them with a high degree of accuracy. And they might say, Mr. Metcalf, I know my endings. Why do we have to keep repeating them? Why must I keep saying these things that I know? And if you're familiar with the way language works, simply knowing and being able to stop and intellectually think through, okay, this is how I would say this, that's far from fluency. You could go to another country and learn a really rudimentary understanding of the language to be able to ask certain questions, and you might have to stop when you get to a restaurant and, and think about, how do I ask for a glass of water? And you would think through how you learned the word for water and how you learned how to form a question, and you could maybe figure out in time, if you gave yourself time to think through it, how to correctly ask for a glass of water. But we all know that's really not knowing a language. Uh, being able to know a language, to fluently function within a language is to do it not just with accuracy, but with ease. And so by repetition and repetition and repetition, the idea isn't just we need to learn something we don't know, but we need to make easy something that we actually do know. And so here's my analogy. 
we are in the season of Eastertide. Raise your hand if you know that Jesus rose from the dead. Good, that's what I figured. So I, I don't have to preach Luke 24. Um, but. So why am I preaching another sermon in a seven-week season that week after week after week is going to take us back to the resurrection. Another question. How many of you navigate your daily life with a firm, grounded, consistent, and persistent understanding and uh, influence of the resurrection of Christ in your life? We want to become fluent in the resurrection. Not just understand, yes, it happened. We want to have the reality of the resurrection be the most operative reality in our life. So when I'm walking into my workplace, when I'm functioning within my family, when I'm talking to my neighbors, when I'm making decisions about how I'm going to spend my money, when I'm making decisions about the kind of vacation I'm going to go on, when I'm making decisions about what I'm going to do and what I'm going to not do, how I'm going to react to a difficult situation, we want the most operative reality in every single one of those moments to be this. Christ is risen. And that's not just a reality about the world that stands far off from us, like way out there somewhere, but is something that comes into and evades, invades my personal space and says, everything now because of this reality must change. Uh, Father Michael shared last week a little bit about his being found by Christ. And uh, it was fun for me to then kind of think back about the occasion in my life where I would say, yes, this is when Christ came and he opened my eyes to see and in that moment, uh, for me, I think for some people it happens differently. In that moment, I learned nothing new. Uh, I had grown up in the church. I had been taught the gospel. Uh, I knew scriptural truths. But there was a particular moment when I was 20 years old uh, in Townsville, Australia, uh, with a group called YWAM. And Almost in a moment, it seemed like these things that I had said all of a sudden like came into color. It's like, whoa, Christ is risen. No, not just like, yeah, Christ is risen or Christ is risen, check mark on my doctrinal statement, but Christ is risen. A, a man roughly 2,000 years ago having been dead for three days, probably stinking really badly. I mean, just stop. Do this exercise with me. What would it be like for a dead corpse to open its eyes? A corpse, three days dead, laying on a stone slab. And its eyes open. 
I mean, like that's the kind of like story that has to absolutely rock our world. Like we can't walk away from that like, oh, that's cool. Uh, like a human being died and three days the heart started beating again and his eyes opened and he left a tomb sealed by a stone. Uh, I, I read this this week and I thought, oh, that's pretty clever. I'm going to use that. Uh, how many of you think the stone was rolled away so Jesus could get out of the tomb? The same Jesus who appears in the middle of a room, locked room, with the doors closed, right, that Jesus? The stone was rolled away so that the women could see that Jesus was out of the tomb. Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away. How many, okay, another thought exercise. These are the kind of things that when, when you think through them, you realize, yeah, we Christians really are like really bizarre. Uh, does Jesus have a body right now? Raise your hand if you think Jesus has a body right now. Jesus has a body right now. Uh, he was raised from the dead. He appeared to his disciples. Luke over and over is laboring and part of the story we're going to look at today Jesus eating a fish is to say, he's got a body. He has intestines. He has a stomach. He has taste buds. He has teeth. He ate a fish. When he ascended, did his body like dissipate? And he like went off into like the ethereal realm and his body kind of just floated off somewhere else? I mean, think about this. At this moment, a physical, embodied Jesus exists. Where? I don't know. Uh, some other realm? Uh, I don't think he's hanging out like uh, around Venus, orbiting, uh, just kind of biding his time. We believe in a story of the world that is not flat, but that is filled with an incredible degree of wonder and majesty and mystery. And it's in these moments when we stop to contemplate, to take something we know and just kind of stare at it for a little bit, to have the weightiness of it set in that we realize we are this big and our knowledge is even smaller. I mean, of what we truly know about the world. So here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a gaze at Luke 24, and I want to ask the question, what would, it, what would it look like for the resurrection of Jesus Christ to become more operative in our lives? Not just something kind of over here, but something that is deeply informing and shaping and affecting the way I think and the way I live. The, you're probably familiar with the passage that comes right before uh, our gospel reading. 
So in Luke 24, it's actually one of my favorite passages in Scripture, there are two disciples, uh, not, one, not two of the twelve, uh, but there are two disciples that are walking away from Jerusalem uh, on the road to Emmaus. And as they're walking, a uh, person who, who they don't know comes up beside them and enters into a conversation with them and asks them, you know, where are you going? Why are you so sad? And they respond, well, haven't you heard about everything that's happened? Are you the only person in uh, Jerusalem that is not aware of these things, is their response, which is pretty funny. And, and they don't realize that they're walking beside Jesus. And he begins explaining to them how everything that happened to Christ is fulfilled or was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And they end up being like so excited by his teaching that they say, will you come back to our house with us? And he comes back to the house and it says, in the breaking of bread, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And in that moment, they recognized this is our risen Lord who we thought was dead. We had given up all hope that his mission was successful but now we're sitting at a table with him and he's alive. And it says, this is one of my like favorite, uh, it's so uh, rich. It says, their hearts burned within them. Actually, they were talking to themselves and they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking with us along the road? And then these two disciples get up says, immediately, getting up, they return to Jerusalem. And I kind of, it's not in our gospel reading, but it's too good to pass up uh, because I, I love the Greek. Uh, there's something that happens there that's like, when I looked at, when I was reading it in the Greek, I was like, this is incredible. How have I not heard this before? And why do our translations not bring this out at all? When it says they arose, it's the exact same word as the verb for resurrection, So they, at that moment, after being resurrected, they got up and they returned to Jerusalem. Why were they leaving Jerusalem? Despair. They had given up. They were hopeless. Now their hearts have been resurrected and they go back to Jerusalem saying, no, there is hope. He is alive. We need to go find the disciples and we need to tell them Jesus Christ is alive. And so I love that word picture that Luke uses for the getting up of the disciples. Their hearts are being resurrected in that moment and they return to Jerusalem full of hope and they find the disciples. And just before the road to Emmaus, the women had gone to the empty tomb and they had come back and reported to the disciples. Peter alone, out of excitement, runs, finds the tomb empty. And so now you have the women, you have Peter, you have these two from Emmaus and the rest of the disciples, and they're hanging out in the room talking. And you've got to think at this moment, they're, they're beginning to think, okay, I think this might have really happened. We've got three different witnesses now. We have multiple stories corroborating that Jesus isn't in the tomb 
And now we've had these two disciples say they've actually walked with him on the road and talked to him. And he sat down at their table with them. And they're getting excited. And that's how the passage begins. As they were talking about these things. That's the disciples. And the, these things are the stories of Jesus' appearance in his resurrection. Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace to you. But, knowing, we could say they didn't know. Believing, they maybe realized how little their belief at that moment was because what is their response? Yes, he is. He is here. They're right. No, their response is, ah! Sorry, I just like was really kind of wanted to do that. They cowered. They hide, they tremble, they're afraid. I mean, what it says, they thought there was a ghost in this exact moment that they're saying, hey guys, Jesus is risen. And then Jesus says, hello. And they say, no, get away, you're a ghost. What do we do with that? I want to do something different with that than maybe we're prone to do with it. And I don't want to dog on the disciple. Well, one, I do want to speak up for Thomas a little bit. Like, we call Thomas Doubting Thomas, but in Luke's story, it's not just Thomas. <laughs> it's all of them. It's the whole crew, uh, are the doubting crew. Why? Why did they doubt? Jesus says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? I've never seen a ghost, never really like pondered what it would be like to see a ghost, but if you like really thought you were seeing a ghost, I would imagine it's probably a pretty terrifying experience. Uh, some of you might be like real comfortable in that space with ghosts. I <laughs> probably wouldn't be. Uh, and so they're terrified, genuinely terrified, and Jesus says, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? And he does the same thing that he does with Thomas. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So he invites their inspection. Uh, he, he demonstrates to them the reality of his fleshliness. He says, look, I'm not, I'm not a spirit. You're not seeing things. Touch me. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. He's, I would say, sympathetic to the response of the disciples. And then it says, and while they still disbelieved for joy. It's kind of a weird phrase, isn't it? Like to disbelieve for joy. To, or we might say to disbelieve on account of joy. Here's what the disciples were reckoning with. And here's why I think we can be really um, gracious with them and their doubts. Because they, they got something in that moment. And what they got is, this has never happened before in all of history. 
yeah, Lazarus was brought from the dead, but Lazarus is going to die again. We saw Jesus. We saw him die. We saw him put in the tomb. And that was three days ago. And now this man is standing in front of us. That doesn't happen. That's not the way the world works. Uh, Have you heard before someone uh, in explaining kind of the absurdity of the belief in resurrection say, well, ancients were very naive. That people in ancient civilizations, they they believed in things that we moderns uh, were too intellectual now to really be able to believe in. We understand the way the world works better than they do. They were really naive. And so that's why... I don't see any naiveness. Naivet, is that? Naivete? In the disciples at all. Because what they're saying is, we know people don't do this. We know the world doesn't work like this. We know we've been told it's happening, but we know better. So unless you absolutely prove it to us, we cannot believe. We're not going to be led astray by some silly myth or story or testimony. Only if it's absolutely true will we give ourselves to following you, this risen Lord. And then that's when Jesus kind of humorously says, do you have anything to eat? And at that moment, they say, yeah, there's some fish here. And he takes the fish and he eats the fish as an example again of, look, I'm solid. I have a throat. I have a mouth. I have a stomach. And that's what the resurrection does. It brings you fully back into a fully human, embodied, physical life. So why does that matter? Well, the first thing, before I ask that, here's the first way that I think the resurrection can be operative, and it's to realize and to sit with the weight of it. The disciples did not believe for joy. If you received two letters in the mail from your bank, Uh, bank letterhead, uh, looks official, uh, and one of the letters says, we're very sorry there was an error in one of your transactions, and we are refunding $7.27 back into your bank account. Uh, You would look at that letter and probably say, okay, great, $7.27, and rip it in half and throw it in the trash can. Same exact letterhead, same exact envelope, uh, same exact wording in the letter, except rather than $7.27, it's uh, $72,000 and $72,700. And we're refunding this back into your bank account. How many of you would immediately say, no, no, Another one of these scams. Another one of these jokes. 
Why didn't you do that with the first letter? You didn't do that with the first letter because it didn't startle or amaze you. You were able to continue on with regularity because it didn't land with force upon you. But that second letter, that opened your eyes. And that's going to make you think. And that's going to actually make you probably investigate it a bit. I think the disciples in their doubt, this might sound crazy to say, are actually giving us a good example. Because in that moment they realized this is huge. Do you realize how huge the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is? A Jewish man who said he was God, who walked out of a grave three days after he was crucified. Okay, next implication. And I've just got two implications. He ate a fish, which means Jesus had a body, and he still has a body, which means he was giving a picture of the kind of resurrection that you and I are set to undergo. Which means, again, I kind of do these exercises with myself sometimes. They, may, they probably even seem like a little bit silly, but they help me like get my mind around things. When I die, I'm going to be placed in the ground and my body is going to undergo a natural process of decomposition. And depending on how long I'm there, at a certain point, I'm going to be kind of a little pile of bones that once had thoughts and spoke. We're saying that at a certain point, this being of ours that we call the soul is going to be reunited with that body and it's going to be reinvigorated, breathed into, given new life, have sinews and bones and eyes and teeth and nostrils and taste buds and that you will then possess that body for eternity. Not just like a long time, but for eternity. Like, isn't that far more than just we get together to hear some teaching and sing some songs? Like, we get together because we believe something so radically different about the world that it has to change what we do as a people. Our world goes through life rushing around after experiences and things and hopes and dreams because there's a finish line. There's no bucket list in the kingdom of heaven. There's absolutely no reason to have a bucket list in the kingdom. Because the world as we know it is going nowhere, it's just going to get a whole lot better. When Christ returns, He's not dismantling the earth. He's remaking it. Regiving it its former wonder and beauty and vibrancy. We're not going from physicality to no physicality. We're going from black and white to color. 
the best experience that you think you've ever experienced will pale compared to what you will experience every single day in Christ's new kingdom. That thing that you think, I must experience this before I die. If I could at least visit this location, that location, whatever that is for you, mountains, beach, islands, will pale in comparison to the new creation. And there's even part of me in saying this that like feels a little sheepish. You know, like, and the reason for that is because I think we've been so convinced that to actually claim and take fully a hold of the promises of a resurrected life in a new creation is somehow like unspiritual. Like, no, what I really need to be thinking about is how I'll be worshiping God. It's, it's not, that, that's kind of selfish for me to think about all of these incredible experiences I'm going to have. But why are every single one of those incredible experiences going to be incredible? Because every single one of those are going to be a reflection of His majesty and goodness and beauty. In some mysterious way, the very best wine that you will ever taste will draw you back to worshiping Christ. The very best sautéed mushroom that you will ever eat will be a spiritual experience because it will draw you to Christ, which means we don't have to wait to do that. We can actually do that now. So not only does it mean I don't have to have regrets because if I don't get it now, that's okay. If I, have ne- if I never have one more sautéed mushroom in my life, that's okay. I know Jesus' menu is going to be far greater. But it also means he loves sautéed mushrooms. And when I sit with that sautéed mushroom and I bite into it, he's actually honored by that. Because I'm affirming this stuff is from him and given to us for our good and for our delight. It also means if I know there's an eternal wealth waiting for me, in this particular period of time, I can sacrifice. I can make lots and lots and lots of sacrifices because I don't need it now because I know I will be full for eternity. And so, here's the implications and I'll close. One, don't regret what you don't have or get now or envy what somebody else has fully delight and embrace the joys that you are given and use your opportunities now to point to a better lasting kingdom that is fully enfleshed by sacrificing radically because we actually believe we're going to rise up from the ground with new bodies and live in that state forever. In the name of the Father, and the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen.